This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 3rd of August 2021. And Norman, when this pandemic started, it started with pneumonia in China and it was a scary disease that has obviously spread across the whole world now. And while most people who get COVID don't have severe disease and many, many people have no symptoms whatsoever, of course we know that some people can get really, really sick. And it's maybe it's a good thing to remind ourselves of why so many of us are living in lockdown here in Australia at the moment, and it's to protect people from getting so sick. But there are people in Australia who are suffering very badly with COVID at the moment. Yes. And um, I've spoken to uh, Richard Tataro, who's the uh, co-director of the intensive care service at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney. So they've been consistently looking after people with uh, quite severe COVID-19 throughout because they've taken the bulk of people who've been coming back to Australia with COVID-19, who often, who sometimes get quite sick, uh, they get sick with other things too. So they've been, they really haven't had a break, but now there's a you know, serious uptick. And I talked to Richard about what they're experiencing there. And he calls this an ICU disease, an intensive care disease. Because that's what you're trying to prevent and that's what you're trying to treat effectively. What do you mean by that? Essentially, the bottom line is if you become sick and they can't control the symptoms and there's effectively very few treatments, you end up in intensive care and it becomes an intensive care problem and you've got to be able to successfully treat people in intensive care and get them out again. So what's it like in one of these intensive care wards? What's happening in there? Well, it depends on the ICU ward. Some ICU wards, more modern ones, have got individual rooms with negative pressure where they're sucking the air out because you've actually got to organise the ventilation that you're not going to infect staff and patients aren't going to infect each other. You've got nurses and doctors dressed in full PPE and they're staying like that all day. And that's enormously tiring. It's hot work. If you need to do a procedure where you're actually going to, say, put a line in somebody or or a surgical procedure on the ward, you've actually, on top of the PPE, you've actually got to put on sterile gowns. Just imagine that. So this is gowns on gowns. It's incredibly tiring, stressful work. It's young patients compared to last year. And they're there for a long time. They're there for several weeks, many days, not just two or three, not just two or three days, like normal uh, ICU patients. So it's stressful and it's upsetting as well for staff and for families because they're COVID positive. They're staying COVID positive for quite long periods of time and seem to be producing quite a lot of virus. So you can't allow allow the families in. And part of good ICU is communicating with families and you can't let them in to see their loved one. So these are problems on top of problems. And then you're never quite sure how it's going to end up for the individual. Are they going to survive? What sort of state are they going to survive in? Are we going to keep them as well as they possibly can be? And as Richard Tataro said to me, he's just perplexed by this discussion about vaccination. If they knew what people had to go through in intensive care, even with the best intensive care in the world, which Australian intensive care is right up there, you'd be lining up for whatever vaccine you could get. Oh, it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking when you paint that picture. How does it differ from the the earlier strains of the virus that we were seeing before Delta? Well, obviously it's more infectious, therefore they've just got to be super careful in terms of transmission on the ward. 
it's younger people. Is that because it's making them sicker or because there's just so many people who are getting infected? Nobody's got the answer to that question. It could be just numbers that there are more younger people, because there are more young people, even though the risk is lower, there's more flowing into intensive care. But there is a feeling, particularly internationally and in Britain, that it, it is a nastier disease in young people than previously. And I think I heard the, um, the in the New South Wales press conference yesterday that no one who's been vaccinated with both doses has gone into ICU. Yep, and Richard Tataro confirms that, that he hasn't seen a patient, in, at least in his ICU, who's been totally vaccinated. If people are staying on this specialised equipment like ventilators for a long time, what does that mean for our capacity to care for more people? Well, it has a direct effect on major surgery, for example. So there are surgeries like open heart surgery, major abdominal surgery, where the routine is to send you to intensive care for two or three days. You might need to be ventilated for a day or so after the after a long period of anaesthetic um, just to you know, keep things under control. If you get beds blocked by a growing number of people in ICU, then you, are, you limit your capacity to treat people with other conditions on the wards. Now, I'm not sure that's happening yet in New South Wales. It certainly happened overseas during the early waves of the pandemic, but this is showing no signs of tailing off and the growing, it's a growing number of people in ICU because you're not actually able to discharge them for quite some time. Right. So COVID's not the only thing that's happening. That's right. So the effect of COVID, COVID has a flow-on effect to other people with other illnesses. So Norman, that's all really sobering stuff. And you said that people in ICU are getting younger. There, there's no children in ICU as far as I know, but we did hear from Queensland in the Queensland press conference yesterday that 10 of yesterday's community cases were kids under the age of 10. And Stephanie's asking about this, and so is Donald actually. Stephanie's kids are two-year-old and a newborn, and she's concerned they're being left out. And Donald's making the point that under-16s are not in the national roadmap. Under-12s don't have uh, the vaccines approved for them. The person in Donald's house who's most likely to get COVID is their 10-year-old um, because the parents don't get out that much. So what should we be doing for kids in immunisation? We should be immunising down to 12. It's been approved down to 12, and we've got to just see what Atagi recommends there. We have a practical issue to do with vaccine supply, but it is essential that it goes down to 12. And then the problem under 12 is that we don't have clinical trials yet that prove that the vaccines are safe. And you do not want to give a vaccine to a child, a younger child, unless you're sure it's safe. So we've got to do those trials. The Food and Drug Administration have asked Pfizer to increase the number of patients, younger children in their trials to make sure that it's safe at a a larger sample size. This This is in the States. That's overseas, that's right. And we just need to wait on that. So although parents are desperate to get their kids immunised, we just have to wait and see that they are indeed safe. But down to 12, we should be getting on with that. And a kind of corollary to that, those questions is from Patrick saying, why are we still doing the phase rollout of the vaccine? Wouldn't it be better to just set up a hub and let anyone who wants it to come and get it? Surely that would speed up the rollout if we just opened up the requirements. Well, interestingly, last night on 7.30, I had Professor Emma McBride from James Cook University who's modelled this. And her view is that what you sh- we should do is what we're doing, which is um, immunising people over 60, 60-year-olds, by the way, and over listening to us, go out and get your Astra. Do not wait for Pfizer. Just get it now. It's outrageous that you're not getting it done. You don't need younger people in Australia being any more angry at uh, boomers. Just go out (laughs) and get your Astra and get the second dose. But she said, that's right, and that will protect people who are most vulnerable to hospital admission, ICU, and dying. 
What she says should be the next priority is not coming down to the under 60s to the 50s and then the 40s to the 50s, is actually come right down to 30-year-olds and younger, uh, maybe 40 and younger, right down to 12-year-olds, because those are the people who are circulating in the community and more likely to both be infected and transmit the virus. So if you actually wanted to control things, get right down into that age group and then work back up into people who are middle-aged. And so that, that makes sense. Israel eventually abandoned the priority groups and just opened it up to anyone, and we'll probably get to that point. But before that, you might want to immunise younger groups before that. And those are just the groups that Patrick quite rightly says are just hanging around waiting for it. They've been told they can't get the Pfizer. So now we, we shift that to the 40 to 60-year-olds who are probably going to feel hard done by as well. It's can't really win with this, I think. No. But then back to Patrick's question, isn't that complicating it again? Like what's the what's the problem with just opening up the doors and being like, if you want a vaccine, come and get it? Because in a, an atmosphere of, in an environment of low supply, you want to direct the initial doses where it's going to have the maximal effect. So for example, in Greater Sydney, it's got to be Southwest Sydney, you've got to get maximal effect there and then spread out from there. And uh, you want to get the best bang for your buck in the initial phase. When you've got plenty of vaccine around, you might want to do that. But remember, you've actually got to go out to people as well to make sure that young people, young men in particular, disadvantaged groups and others, will uh, you need that and probably need a more proactive outreach. And how long is it going to be before we see whether the vaccine surge in Sydney is working? That's a very good question, but you, you prob- the modelling, I think, would suggest, from what I can gather, is that you're not going to see an effect of it until probably that 70% figure, which is 56% of the population, that round about then where you've got half of people with both doses, that's when you might start to see an effect on hospitalizations and admissions. But you may not see... The next question is how much effect that's got on top of lockdown in terms of bending the curve. Can you put a date on it? Well, what I hear is end of September. I mean, you're the one in Sydney, Norman. Hurts to say it. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's Coronacast. Your questions, your comments, please send them to abc.net.au slash coronacast. And we'll be here to talk to you tomorrow. Yes, we will. See you then. <laughs>